Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. One of the more difficult truths to wrestle with in the Christian life is that we are not promised that life will be easy, smooth sailing once we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ. We're never promised perfect health in life. We're never promised a painless death, protection from every kind of harm or disappointment. And we certainly aren't promised abundance of possessions or riches. In fact, we're actually promised quite the opposite. In 1 Peter 4.12, we're told not to be surprised by fiery trials as though something strange is happening to us. After being stoned in Lystra, in Acts 14.22, the Apostle Paul strengthens the believers by saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And in John 16.33, Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our passage today is really an example of the Christian life. Israel has been miraculously saved from the hand of the Egyptians. They've been released from their bondage, and we have just seen them rejoicing in the salvation of God. And now they're heading out to the promised land. But to get there, they will have to travel through the wilderness. Their hope of future blessing peace and rest stands before them as sure as the rising of the sun. But on the way there, they're going to face many trials of various kinds. And in the same way, our salvation has been fully accomplished through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are completely redeemed and reconciled to God, and we have a hope that is sure and steady of glory forever. But we are not yet in our final resting place. We are in the wilderness, heading towards that glorious destination. And along the way, we're promised that we will face trials of various kinds. So what should we know about ourselves as we walk through this life? And what should we know about God? And how can we stay on the narrow road that leads to glory? And I believe our passage answers these questions. As we look at Israel's response to their trials, we are given a glimpse into our own hearts. As we marvel at God's perfect and wise care, we are shown truths to understand and cling to through our wilderness wandering. And as we listen to God's instructions through Moses, We are provided with ways to guide our hearts and minds along the way. We're going to be looking at a large chunk of the narrative today, from verses 22 in chapter chapter 15 all the way through verse 36 in chapter 16. And we're going to take it in four parts, and in each section, we will see what it reveals about God and what it reveals about the human condition. So begin with me in our first section verses 22 through 27 of chapter 15, where the word of God reveals to us weak hearts and wise purposes. 
Start in verses 22 through 23. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So Israel has just crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They have seen the salvation of God, and they have rejoiced in the triumph of God over Egypt. But that was only the beginning of their journey to the promised land. And the narrative immediately shifts to them running into difficulty. Difficulty that we should see by now is fully inside of the sovereign purposes of God. It had been three days of walking through the wilderness, and they had yet to come across any water. And to make matters worse, when they finally do, it was so bitter that it was undrinkable. It was bad enough to name the place Mara, which means bitter. Their recent triumph and joy was followed by disappointment and tribulation. So how will Israel respond to this first trial? Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now we can sympathize with Israel's situation, right? It would be incredibly difficult to go without water in the desert for three days. Our mouths would be dry. Fatigue would certainly be setting in. And then we come across a water source only to discover that it was too bitter to even drink. You take a sip and you spit it out. The despair would sink in pretty quickly for us, wouldn't it? However, Despite having just seen God stand up the water as walls around them, and instead of trusting in God to provide for them, they grumble against Moses. I think what we see is the weakness of our hearts. Our hearts are so weak. This was a real emergency. But instead of turning to the creator of water itself, they complain and they grumble. And oh, how often do we have grumbling and complaining spirits? We complain about our jobs, our living situations. We complain about friends hurting us, spouses, kids, parents, wearing masks, social distancing. You see, the truth is our hearts are bent far towards grumbling, too much towards grumbling than we would like to admit. I know that mine is. And this passage shines a light into our hearts, and it shows that this weakness, this grumbling, really just reveals a lack of trust in God to care for us. So how do Moses and God respond to this grumbling? Pick up in verses 25 and 26. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, 
If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Moses does what the people of Israel should have done, and he rightly cries to the Lord for help. And it says that the Lord showed him a log. Now, this is kind of a funny thing to picture the way that it's written, isn't it? Lord, we need help. We need water. Moses, just look at that log right there. Um, Okay, that's really odd, but (laughs) it's so interesting the way that it's written. It's so brief. We're not told whether God told Moses to throw that log in the water, although I would imagine that he did. But what we do see is as Moses did, the water wasn't just turned to drinking water. It was made sweet. No longer was it undrinkable, but it was delightful to the taste. And then we see the Lord disclose his wise purposes in all of this. It says he tested them there. And he commanded them to listen, pay attention, and follow his commands. So God shows that the purpose of the coming trials that Israel will face is to see if they will trust and obey him. And then he led them to Marah in order to disclose this purpose to them. He also gives them a warning. Now, I don't think we should get too hung up on the details of the warning, but we should let it land properly God desired trust and obedience, and he reminded them of his judgment towards those that turn away from him. And this is part of the way the Lord helps us in our own uh, sanctification. Warnings like this are not just in the old covenant, and we can be tempted to think that. They run throughout the book of Hebrews and other epistles. You see, sometimes we need those warnings to stay on the narrow road to glory, And so we don't want to dismiss them, but we want to let them do the work in our hearts that they are designed to do, to remind us of who our God is. But also in God's infinite wisdom, he doesn't just give the warning. He gives them a beautiful new name to know him by. Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. Rafe refers to physical and spiritual wellness and soundness. So God brings them to Mara and he cures the water at Mara to show them that they can trust him for all kinds of healing that they will need in this life. He is so faithful. This section then beautifully ends with just an abundance of provision in verse 27. Look at what we see. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now it's likely that the 12 springs coincide with the 12 tribes of Israel, and that the 70 palm trees, the 70 elders. So the idea that's being communicated is that they now encamped at a location with plenty of water and an abundance of provision from God. They're so foolish to distrust him. And God just lavishes them with grace. Surely this would help Israel trust in God as they continue forward. But look with me at the next section, starting in chapter 16, verses 1 through 18. 
where the word of God reveals to us exposed sin and extravagant mercy. Look with me in verses one through three. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So time has passed, and now they're heading out from Edom, Elam. And what's really interesting is that we're not told that they had any need of food here. In fact, it may be safe to assume that they weren't in need at all because they were traveling with livestock that could provide them with cheese and milk. Pay attention to how they describe their situation in Egypt. They say they sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. This shows the deceitfulness of sin. The discomfort of Egypt has all but left their minds, and now they are probably exaggerating their recounting of their food supply. You see what's happening now. Their grumbling is no longer out of need, but it's just out of desire. Continue then in verses 4 through 8. What will the Lord do? Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So God tells Moses how he will provide and what the Israelites should do. And then Moses and Aaron relay to the people that exact thing while exposing their sin. Three times, both their grumbling is described as not against Moses and Aaron, but against the Lord. You see, in the end, church, all of our grumbling is really just sin. And we need to call it what it is. It is the sin of unbelief. We do not believe that the Lord is the one caring for us. And that sin leads to other sin because we often do what the Israelites did with it. We shift the blame onto others that don't deserve it. Now, I've been praying all week that this is a piercing moment in this narrative for us because far too often I see the church torn apart by grumbling and complaining. It keeps reconciliation from happening within the church 
It causes love not to flourish within the church. It traps people in despair and robs them of joy in the Lord. Grumbling is a great sin, and we don't often see it in our hearts, and we need to. But the good news is, there is hope. Look at verses 9 through 12. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Ah, There are so many times, like this moment, in the history of Israel, when our sin of unbelief pours out of our hearts and God just responds with extravagant mercy. Undeserved. The Lord hears their grumbling against him, but he invites them to draw near, to taste, and to see his glory. He lifts their eyes up to the cloud to see his glory. And then he reminds them that they will eat meat in the evening, and then in the morning they will be filled with bread. They think they had it good in Egypt. Wait till they see what the Lord will do for them in the wilderness. Ah, church. We might not always see it because our spiritual taste buds become numb. But what the Lord provides for us is always so much better than we think this world can give to us. Just listen to the description of what God does for this grumbling people in verses 13 through 18. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, Fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. I just picture the sight. When twilight hits, quail is just covering the camp. You asked for meat, you got it. Okay, so... I know what you may be thinking. Quail, bird, not exactly what I would call meat. To which my South African friends right now say, amen. (laughs) But just think about the abundance of provision. You look around and it's just there for you. Then you wake up in the morning and as the dew lifts, you see this fine flake-like substance all around you. And you discover it's bread from the Lord. 
and you're told, go, gather as much as you can eat. So you go and you grab what you can and you sit down and you eat and at the end of it, you're like, oh, that is so filling. That is so good. You look to your neighbor, are you hungry? Are you hungry? And everybody's just like, no, I'm stuffed. That was perfect. Do you see the extravagant mercy of God towards a grumbling people? He fills them with the bread in spite of their sin. Israel is grumbling against the Lord one minute and the next minute they are completely satisfied. Yet, sadly, as it does many times with us, this satisfaction doesn't last very long. And in verses 19 through 30, the word of God reveals next to us stubborn unbelief and sufficient providence. Look at verses 19 through 20. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over to the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. How quickly they forget that the Lord will provide everything that they need if they just trust him. Moses reminds them not to leave anything until the morning. And some foolishly try to store it away, thinking that they're going to be hungry the next day. It's so true of our hearts. We can be so stubborn in our unbelief at times, can't we? Have you ever experienced anything like this? The Lord provides something satisfying for you, and you find yourself quickly doubting that he will care for you with the next thing. To my shame, I had a moment like this weeks ago. If you remember, I left my phone at home and barely arrived at the service in time to start. Now, what you might not know is that we have pre-service prayer on Saturday mornings now, and And I have been so blessed by how it has set my heart upon God before church. And that morning, I had a particularly sweet time with the Lord, and I was ready to worship. So I arrive outside the building, and I realize I don't have my phone with the Al Hosan app, and I start driving back. Everything's going well. My heart's doing well. On the way back, though, I get a call that tells me I had the only key to one of our bags of equipment, And there were some issues going on with setup. And instead of trusting that God was with us, my heart was overwhelmed. I lost sight of his goodness that was with me just hours before. And I start to panic, I get anxious, I get frustrated. Now God ended up being very kind to me and he provided for me and he blessed me and I was able to walk in and worship. But boy was I saddened by my unbelief. Can you relate? Have you ever been through something like that? It's so sad. God is so faithful though. Pick back up in the story with me to see how God continues to provide for them in his grace. Verses 21 through 23. 
Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot and melted, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So God patiently reiterates his command, and then he introduces the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a very important command for Israel, so much so that keeping the Sabbath will become one of the Ten Commandments given. We don't have time to dig deeply into it, but I want to give a few brief comments on it for us to consider. First, notice that it is commanded before the Ten Commandments are ever given. And notice the environment in which it is commanded and what it is intended to do. Second, of the Ten Commandments, keeping the Sabbath is the only one not repeated in the New Testament. The Sabbath is mentioned a lot as a reference to time throughout the Gospels and Acts. Jesus corrects the Pharisees' wrong understanding of what was lawful on the Sabbath many times. And there are only two instances of the Sabbath in any of the epistles. One is in Colossians 2.16, about not letting people pass judgment on you regarding a Sabbath. And the other is in Hebrews 4.9, pointing to an eternal Sabbath rest to come. These things, along with many others, tell me that keeping the Sabbath is not a binding command in the New Covenant, but I do believe that it's a helpful concept for us to incorporate into life. And I would encourage specifically incorporating its design on the days that we gather for worship. So with that in mind, let's continue in the passage and let's see why it's here in the first place. Verses 24 through 26. So they laid it aside till the morning, the manna, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So we see Israel obeying at first. And they're assured that the bread will be good for eating the next day. But they're also told there's not going to be any for you to find tomorrow. Now sadly, we see Israel's stubborn unbelief kick in again. Start in verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Surprise, surprise. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested. On the seventh day. Ah, oh, we, can, we can be so stubborn in our trust of the Lord. <laughs> we know what he's said. We know what he's spoken. Oh, we just have to see for ourselves. Will he really provide for me? But this time, God's response is a moment of rebuke. He rebukes them for refusing to keep his commandments. He reminds them of his command and the people 
finally obey and they rest. The command of God in this section and the Sabbath point to the sufficiency of God's providence. God will provide exactly what we need. And part of what we need is rest to remind ourselves of just that. The point of the Sabbath was to pause and to know that God is providentially caring for the people of Israel throughout the wilderness. It was to trust in the sufficiency of his providence that the bread gathered the day before would be good and enough to satisfy them on the seventh day so that they could rest. And in a similar way, it is wise for us to rest and to seek to set our minds on Christ when we gather together on Saturdays or Fridays or Sundays in your home country. To reignite in our hearts a deep trust in God's sufficient providence. He will always provide everything we need. And we can trust in Him. We come then to the last section of our passage. It's been a long trek. Verses 31 through 36. And here I see the word revealing perpetual faithfulness and purposeful remembrance. The passage starts by describing the flake-like substance that fed Israel in verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Can I just say I love the description of it being like wafers made with honey? I like honey a lot. But it wasn't just bread. It wasn't just sustenance. It was sweet and tasty bread. God is so generous to us at times. Pay attention, though, to verses 32 through 34. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, the manna, be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Now by now it's becoming painfully obvious how short of a memory span Israel had. At the first sign of difficulty, they forgot the faithfulness of God. In tests of trust, they stubbornly don't obey and trust God's word. So in great wisdom and care for his people, God encourages them towards purposeful remembrance. He tells them to take an omer of the manna that was provided for them and to keep it throughout their, general, their generations as a visual representation of God's providential and miraculous provision in the wilderness. Every time you look at that jar, you will be reminded of what God did. And I think this is a reminder of our need to remember and to be purposeful about it. Because we, like Israel, have short memory spans of God's goodness towards us. This is the primary purpose of communion. We purposefully set out to remember all that Christ is.
as we think on his death for us, as we think on the payment for our sins, as we think on how it satisfied God's wrath towards all of our sin, we remember and we're reminded that he can be trusted. We also purposefully remember God's goodness through songs when we gather together or by opening and hearing from his word. We remember it by speaking often to one another of the cross and the resurrection. We need to set out to purposefully remember what God has done for us so that we will stay on the narrow road to glory. And then the final thing that we see in this passage, I love it. It's God's perpetual faithfulness. It just keeps on going. Verses 35 through 36. The people of Israel ate the manna for 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephath. For 40 years, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and God provided manna the whole time. Each morning, there was enough to sustain them for over 14,000 days. Every sixth day, enough was available for the seventh, and every seventh day, they were able to rest in God's faithfulness. This is even more astounding when we realize that they were in the wilderness for that long because of their sin and disobedience. God continued to be faithful to his word, even to a people that weren't faithful to him. Now, this passage, I think, has so many challenging applications for us to consider. Whether it's reflecting on our own temptations to grumble, or it's challenging our hearts to listen and obey the word of the Lord, whether it's thinking through how it might be beneficial for us to consider taking a Sabbath rest and reminding ourselves of God's providence, or whether it's thinking over what ways we are purposefully remembering what God has done for us, there's a takeaway for each one of us somewhere in this passage. But there is an even greater significance of this text. You see, like Israel, we are all in need of life-giving water. And Jesus Christ stands before us and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Like Israel, we need the bread of heaven to truly sustain us. And Jesus Christ says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. As Israel needed rest from its laboring in the wilderness, we too long for rest. You get the picture by now. Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is our living water. He is our sustaining bread of life. In him, we find true and everlasting rest. He has accomplished everything that we needed on the cross, and he will guide us through the wilderness and be faithful to bring us to the glorious rest forever in his presence. The great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, perfectly provides the words for our hearts in response 
through her hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, which I will end with. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit, clothed immortal, wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Please stand with me as I pray this over us. Jesus Christ, you are so faithful to lead us. You keep our steps. You guide us. You provide us with everything we need. We ask that you would seal in our hearts a reminder of who you are. That you would teach us to trust and obey. That you would be with us. That you would guide us. That you would satisfy us, we pray. In your holy name, amen.